Well, we welcome all of you who are joining us online, as well as those of you who are meeting together here at Central Campus, along with others of you meeting at one of our other campuses in Airdrie, Bridgeland, South Calgary. They're meeting for the first time in their new facility, so let's just give them a hand, um, wishing them God's very best. And also our Bears Paw campus, and someone texted me and said they're packed out this morning as well. So it's just great to see people coming back and seeing you in person. God bless you as you do. Did you ever notice that life is filled with questions? And most of the tough ones begin with the word why. Kids especially like to ask the why questions of life. And some of them aren't easy to answer. I still remember when our sons were just little guys. And I was spending some quality time with them watching worms migrate across our sidewalk after a rainy stretch. It had been one of those mornings uh, when they drilled me with dozens of questions like, Dad... Why is a burger called hamburger when the meat is actually beef? I mean, shouldn't it be called beef burger? Or why do so many worms come out of the ground to go on the sidewalk after it rains? Why, Dad? Why? Why? Then one of our boys who was kind of hunched over watching worms do their thing asked a remarkable question. He said, Dad... Do worms yawn? <laughs> and I remember thinking, where did they come up with these questions? Do worms yawn? Now, I didn't want to, you know, ignore the question or disappoint him, so I said, son, worms only yawn when they're in church. <laughs> no, I never said that. But my point is, we are wired up to be curious and to want to find answers to the questions of life. And often there are answers to be found. But other times there are no clear, or, um, clear answers. And, and that can leave us feeling um, unsettled, especially when it has to do with who God is and what He's like. Well, in Romans chapter 9 to 11, Paul wrestles with questions pertaining to the nature of God and his relationship with us. For example, how can God be just and gracious at the same time? Or how can God be sovereign, be in total control, and yet at the same time, humanity be free? Lots of questions about who God is and the way that he does things. Well, in these three chapters, Paul uses Israel to not only teach us about uh, Israel's relationship with God, but also to teach us at least three major truths about our God. First of all, in Romans 9, we learn that our God is sovereign, which means God is in total control and has the right to do whatever he wants to do. He answers to no one. Ever since our first parents, Adam and Eve, rebelled against God in the garden, God's all-consuming passion has been to bring all people into relationship with himself. And toward that end, he determined 
that he would extend grace to a fallen humanity, a grace that can only be received by faith. God didn't have to extend grace or mercy. He simply chose to do so. And then secondly, in chapter 10, we learn that our God is good and gracious. Even though God doesn't treat us all the same, when it comes to our eternal destiny, God is gracious. And the Bible says he is actually patient in the sense that he gives all people the opportunity to become a friend of God and thereby to be saved. Romans 10, 12 uh, puts it uh, in, in a really good way. This is what it says. For there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. Whenever you come across the word Gentile, it means those who aren't Jewish. So, he says, for there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. The same Lord is Lord of all and richly blesses all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Everyone who calls on the Lord will be saved. No one's excluded from that, folks. No one. Which brings us to Romans 11, which focuses on the faithfulness of our God. Now, as I pointed out last time, God chose Abraham and his descendants, the Jewish people, to be his representatives, to reveal himself and his truth to the world. But Israel didn't follow through on this. They failed to do what he called them to do. They wanted to receive the blessing of God, but they didn't necessarily want to be the blessing of God to other nations. And so God chose to put Israel on pause for a time as his representatives and to reveal himself through the body of Christ, the church. However, even though God has put Israel on hold, he isn't through with Israel. A day is coming when there will be restoration. Why? Because God is faithful. He keeps his promises. That, in a nutshell, is the message of Romans 11. Now, if you subscribe to the shoreline, you know that in my little introduction, I always encourage you to read the passage that we're going to be looking at in advance. And those of you who did that right now are thinking, this is a little deeper. This chapter is just a way bit deeper and more complicated than the summary you just gave, Pastor. Well, you're right. But if you'll just give me your undivided attention for the next 15 to 20 minutes or so, I will do my best to unpack this fairly deep chapter for us, and then I'm going to close with a couple of applications. So please open your Bible now and follow along as we go through it. But before we do, I'd like you to stand with me if you're able, and let's just dedicate this time to the Lord in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, again, I want to thank you. I want to thank you for your goodness, and I want to thank you for your word, for reaching out to us and, and helping us to understand who you are and how you want us to live our life so that it would be a life that is lived to the full.
And Lord, help us to understand this, this chapter. But more than just to understand it, Lord, to apply the many truths that we found woven in it to our lives. I pray, Lord, that you would give us the courage to step out and to do what you're calling us to do or to be who you're calling us to be. For we pray it all in your precious name. Amen. You may be seated. Now, in this chapter, Paul asks two major questions. And the first question is this. Did God reject the Jewish people? In other words, he's responding to the question, is God done with all the Jews as his chosen people? Well, Paul answers his own question in verse 1. And he says, by no means. And he gives two reasons. First of all, in verse 1, he writes, I am an Israelite myself, a descendant of Abraham from the tribe of Benjamin. Paul says, I'm a Jew, and I'm being used by God to point people to the reality of my Lord and King, which is living proof that God isn't finished with the Jews yet because he's not finished with me. In fact, he's using me to impact many people for Christ. Furthermore, says Paul, in addition to myself, there are many other Jews who believe Jesus is the Messiah and they follow him as Lord. In verse 2 to 6, he says, remember when Elijah was depressed after his successful confrontation with the prophets of Baal? And he was sitting under a broom tree and he was totally convinced that he was the only one left who remained faithful to God. And in verse 4, God says this, I have reserved myself 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. And if by grace, then it cannot be based on works. If it were, grace would no longer be grace. God says, Elijah, you aren't the only faithful person left. I see 7,000 who have not yet bowed the knee to Baal. You see, in every generation, in every era, there are some Jews who believe in Jesus Christ. Even in our day, there are many Jews believing in Jesus as their Messiah, more so than at any other period down through church history over the last 2,000 years. And so Paul says, you've got to understand that, that God's rejection of the nation of Israel is only partial. It is only those who are trusting in their good works rather than in God's grace for their salvation. There have always been numbers of Jews who have embraced God's grace by faith. And God continues to work through these Jewish Christians to point people to his reality and to Jesus Christ. So no, God is not done with the Jewish people. Now in verse 7 to 10, Paul writes these very strong words. What then? What the people of Israel sought so earnestly they did not obtain. The elect among them did, but the others were hardened. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that could not see and ears that could not hear to this very day. 
And David says, may their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. May their eyes be darkened so they cannot see and their backs be bent forever. Now again, hard verses to understand, but essentially what Paul is saying here is those Israelites who insist on depending on their own righteousness, those who kind of look around and compare themselves and their morality with others around them and think they're just fine, those who think that they're good enough to meet God's requirements for salvation on the basis of their own goodness and their own efforts, there comes a time when God turns them over. We read about that in Romans chapter 1. There comes a time when God turns them over as he turned Pharaoh over. And here in verse 8, look at verse 8. It says, he gives them a spirit of stupor, which means he allows them to remain proud, self-absorbed, and hardened in their resolve to go their own way, to trust in their own righteousness until they come to a place where they no longer hear or understand. They no longer hear the call of God. They no longer understand the truth of God. Now, this is a rather sobering thought. But like I said last time, this is not what God wants. In 2 Peter 3.9 says, God is patient. He does not want anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. And so he pours out his grace to all people. But when a person willfully and continually rejects him and his call on their lives, there will be a time in the sovereignty of God where he turns them over to what it is they want. And their stubborn rejection of God will eventually result in them being eternally separated from God for all of eternity. And so when we hear the truth and we know the truth, we just know that this is true. This is of God. It is so important that we not let our pride get in the way. It is so important that we not delay responding to the truth, but that we embrace the truth by faith. And that we're serious about living out that truth. For today, today is the day of salvation. We have no guarantee about tomorrow. And then in verse 11, Paul asks the second question. It's essentially the same as the first question, just with a little bit of a twist. Again, I ask, did they stumble so as to fall beyond recovery? Not at all. So Paul's asking here, does God have another chapter to be written for Israel as a nation? Now, some believe that, and, and you know, there's a lot of... <laughs> There's a lot of teaching going on right now in the area of prophecy. And, um, and there's a lot of interesting conversations going on. And there are some people who believe that Israel as a nation will not be restored to its original position. They believe because Israel did not do what God called them to do, 
The covenant God gave is now null and void. Meaning, God no longer has any obligation to meet the promises that he made to Israel. They believe that the true church of Jesus Christ has permanently replaced Israel. And this is called replacement theology. They believe the Christian church has now become the spiritual Israel and that the biblical prophecies and the promises in the Old Testament pertaining to Israel now pertain exclusively to the church. However, Paul clearly teaches here that that is not the case. He says, yes, Israel stumbled, but they haven't fallen beyond recovery. In other words, yes, Israel has stumbled. In other words, they have been put on hold temporarily. But they haven't fallen. In other words, God has not permanently written off the nation of Israel. God intends to write another chapter for the Jewish people. And I want you to notice in verse 11 and 12 that Paul clearly distinguishes between ethnic Gentiles and Jews, and those words cannot be spiritualized, which tells me that when Paul says God isn't through with Israel yet, he's talking about the literal Jewish nation. Or take Psalm 89, verse 30, as another example. This is what it says. If his sons forsake my law and do not follow my statutes... If they violate my decrees and fail to keep my commands, I will punish their sin with the rod, their iniquity with flogging, but I will not take my love from them, nor will I ever betray my faithfulness. God says, I will discipline Israel as a nation when they are disobedient, but I will not be unfaithful to my promises to them. See, some of God's promises have conditions attached to them. If we break the conditions, he is not obligated to keep his part. But God also has given unconditional promises, as he did with Israel. And he will be faithful to those promises, even if we are not faithful to them. Now, in verse 11 to 15, those verses tell us when God chose to put Israel on hold for a time and to empower the church to be his representatives of the good news, there were two positive outcomes. First of all, the Gentiles are all of those who are non-Jews. The Gentiles were introduced to Jesus and how to have a relationship with Jesus. Secondly, when large numbers of Gentiles become Christ's followers and are totally transformed from the inside out by Jesus Christ as a result, the Jews will see the changed lives of the Gentiles and become envious of them. In other words, they will want what the Gentiles have, which will lead them back to the Lord. I have a friend in Israel... And one of the things he told me was how absolutely blown away he was 
by many of the Christians that he met to the point where it led him to Christ. And this is happening, friends. This is happening. Which leads to a question I'd like us to think about for a moment. Is our Christian life so attractive and joy-filled and our love toward one another so appealing that people who are far from God will want what we have? In Matthew 5, Jesus said, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. In other words, he was saying, you are the vehicle through which my kingdom will come to earth as it is in heaven. You know, we're living in a generation that is weary of words. Many couldn't care less what we say, but they will listen to a person who lives a supernaturally different lifestyle. And so let me ask you, is your Christian life, is it joy-filled or is it embalming? Is it a delight or a drag? I mean, are we living a life that attracts others to Jesus? When people look at our character and our integrity, when they look at what we are passionate about in our lives, what we're giving our lives to, when they see the way we conduct ourselves, what we do with our time and our money, the way we love and treat each other, and the way we love and treat other people that we may not agree with, do they see something that is so attractive that they want to know more about the Jesus that we know and love? We need to ask ourselves from time to time, is it possible that there are people who couldn't care less about Jesus because they've been watching our life, they've been monitoring our attitude at work and at school, and they're thinking to themselves, man, there's got to be a better way to live than that. Church, when Jesus says, you are the light of the world, he's saying, you're my strategic representatives. Wherever you find yourself, at school, at a hockey game, in rush hour traffic, in your neighborhood, wherever. Howard Hendricks puts it this way. He said, you're there to give people an option. In other words, he's saying, you're here on earth and not in heaven to give people an option, to show them through your heart attitude and your missional lifestyle that there's another way. In fact, there's a better way to live. He said, you see, we preachers, we could never have that kind of impact because people know that we're paid to be good. But then he pointed to the audience and he said, you on the other hand are good for nothing. <laughs> if you know what I mean. And that is powerful. May God help all of us as Christ followers to live a life others want to follow wherever we find ourselves. Okay, back to our scripture lesson. So after answering his two questions, Paul now moves on to give two illustrations. In verse 16, he writes, If the part offered as first fruits is holy, then the whole batch is holy. 
Now, Paul's referring here to the offerings and sacrifices in the tabernacle in the book of Numbers. When someone made an offering of the first fruits, they made up a pile of dough, not a pile of cash, but a pile of dough, you know, made from flour. And they would take the first part of it, or a tithe, or 10%, and they would present it to God. And what's being said here is, if a portion of the dough is acceptable to God, then so will the rest of the dough be acceptable to God. Now, in the context of what Paul's writing here, the first fruit that's being referred to is actually Abraham, the father of the nation of Israel. The Bible says that Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. In other words, Abraham was saved or he was redeemed by faith in God. And Paul is saying here, since Abraham was made righteous through faith in God, his descendants, or the rest of the dough, will also be made righteous if, like Abraham, they put their faith in God. Now, in verse 17, Paul uses a second illustration, that of the olive tree. And this is what he writes. If the root is holy, so are the branches. If some of the branches have been broken off and you, though a wild olive shoot, have been grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing sap from the olive root, do not boast over those branches. If you do, consider this. You do not support the root, but the root supports you. You will say then, branches were broken off so that I could be grafted in. Granted, but they were broken off because of unbelief and you stand by faith. Do not be arrogant, but be afraid. For if God did not spare the natural branches, he will not spare you either. Now again, this is very difficult for us to understand today, but the Jews of that day totally understood the analogy that was given here of the olive tree. See, throughout the entire Old Testament, the olive tree represents Abraham and his descendants, the nation of Israel. In fact, when you have a moment, look up Jeremiah chapter 11, verse 16, because it says that the olive tree is a symbol of Israel. Now, if you've been to Israel, you know that there are olive trees everywhere. <clears throat> it's a national symbol. In the pilgrimages that I've led to Israel, we always visit the Garden of Gethsemane, where Jesus prayed just before he was arrested. And in that garden, there are olive trees that are over 2,000 years old. Now, here's an interesting fact. Olive trees never really die. They may lie dormant and not produce fruit, sometimes for hundreds of years. But then suddenly, they come alive and they start budding again. This fact is fascinating because Israel was dormant as a nation. 
And it was also put on pause by God as his representatives for centuries. But then in 1948, Israel suddenly became alive again as a nation, which the prophets predicted would happen hundreds of years ago. There's a whole sermon that I could preach on that alone. And I do when I'm in Israel. <laughs> but as Paul teaches here in Romans 11, Israel will come to life again spiritually in the future. And so Abraham is the root. And the Jewish descendants are the branches. And Paul writes here, because the natural branches or the Jews weren't representing him in the world. In fact, in Israel right now, you can't even um, share Jesus with someone. You're breaking the law if you do. That's where Israel's at right now. They weren't representing him in the world. They aren't today. So God broke them off for a time. And in their place, grafted in unnatural branches, which is referring to the Gentiles, so that some of the life and the energy and the blessings of the root would come to us. Bottom line, we non-Jewish Christians are now inheriting many of the blessings that God gave to Israel. Or in Paul's word, look at verse 17. We are now sharing the nourishing sap from the olive root because we've been grafted in. For instance, I have a Bible here, as you do, written by 40 different authors, and all of them except one was a Jew. Luke was the only one that wasn't. I have a Savior, Jesus Christ, who was a Jew. So everything that we have spiritually in Christ comes to us through the Jews. And so in verse 20 to 25, Paul says to the Gentile Christians, don't you ever become arrogant or consider yourself superior to the Jews. Look down your nose and say, oh man, look at those Jews. They're not doing anything for God. Because as verse 18 says, you do not support the root. The root supports you. Paul also warns us not to grow complacent the way the Jews did and to forget the purpose God called us to give our lives to. Because if you do, you will be cut off, not from saving faith, because remember, God is faithful and he will keep that which you've committed to him. But God will cut you off from the blessings and the power of God in your life, in your witness, and in your impact as an individual. And since we are all the church, he will also cut off our impact as a church if we grow complacent and if we become inward focused rather than being on mission, what God's called us to do. God is talking primarily to the church here. And he's saying the Christian church that becomes ingrown and complacent and self-absorbed and unconcerned for the lost and is disobedient to the Lord, she will lose her influence, her impact, and her blessings. And of course, we have and are seeing that in churches today. 
Churches that have rejected the Bible as true. Churches that are no longer share the gospel with other people. And they, many of them, are closing their doors. And church, I pray that we will not follow the way of ancient Israel or even modern Israel. That we will not follow the way of the, these apostate churches and become ingrown and self-absorbed and comfortable and complacent but that we will remain wholly committed to Jesus Christ, to God's truth in the scriptures, to listening to his voice, to sharing his truth and his love with those that he's brought into our lives, to investing our time and our abilities and our resources sacrificially and faithfully, gathering together weekly for worship and with a small group of others who are committed to praying for God's kingdom and for each other and encouraging each other to live the way of Jesus. When Jesus comes again and he sees his bride, the church, I pray he will not be met with a self-centered, lethargic, passionless bride but that he will see a biblically functioning community of fully devoted followers of Christ who are passionately committed to accomplishing God's redemptive purposes in our world may it be so I pray now look at verse 25 I do not want you to be ignorant of this mystery brothers and sisters so that you may not be conceited Israel has experienced a hardening in part until the full number of Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. Paul says here, as Israel continues to reject Jesus, more and more Gentiles will embrace Christ by faith. But sometime in the future, which some believe will take place during the tribulation, a tipping point will be reached which will trigger a revival, a massive move of God among the Jewish people that will result in not every single Jew being saved necessarily, but a large percentage of Israeli people recognizing and embracing Jesus Christ as their Messiah and Lord. Why? Because God is faithful. And he keeps his promises. And friend, here's the thing. If God is faithful to the Israelites, God will be faithful to you. You can trust him. He won't let you down. The next time, and I'm talking to Christians right now, the next time you feel like throwing in the towel, because you've failed God yet once again and are so sure that God has had it with you. Remember that just because you failed him does not mean that he's giving up on you. He's faithful to his promises, friends. And his love endures forever. God is for you. And yes, he is faithful. And let me just add another application that comes out of this passage. 
Because God is faithful, not only should we not give up when we fall or when we fail, but we should not give up on others either. You'll recall back in Romans chapter 9, verse 1, Paul expresses his love and his concern for his people. And it was so great that he, he said, if it were possible... He said, I would give up my friendship with Jesus if it meant that my people, the Jews, would commit their lives to Christ. I mean, that is amazing love. And so I ask you, is there a family member? Is there a parent, a son, a daughter, a brother, a sister, a friend, a working associate, a classmate, a neighbor, who is far from God and you would do anything for them to become a friend of Jesus? Has God placed a burden for a person like that on your heart? Who is that person in your life? Have you written them into your, your prayer journal? Friends, don't ever give up on them. God loves them. He is pouring out his grace toward them, wanting them to respond to him. God put them on your heart for a reason. So keep praying for them. Keep serving and caring for them in whatever way you're able to. You know, I prayed for some family members for over a decade, and I can remember it as if it was yesterday in my prayer journal when I came to their names One day I just said, it'll never happen. I'm done praying for them. They're just never going to change. And I flipped over the page. And it was like a short time later, a few weeks later, they came to Christ. And it was as if God was saying to me, don't you ever give up praying for people. Don't ever give up on those people that God's put on your heart. God loves them. He's pouring out his grace on them. Over the years, I've studied with people, the Bible with people, some of whom from my human perspective, when I invited them into looking at matters of the faith, from my perspective, they were just too bright, they were too educated, they were too skeptical to ever put their their trust in Jesus Christ. But I just kept praying. And I kept meeting with them anyways, and God surprised me over and over again down through the years as many of them came to faith in Christ, including one who embraced Christ just a few days before he died. Never give up on people that God has put on your heart. He loves and cares about them and their salvation more than you do. Just keep praying for them and faithfully doing what he calls you to do and then leave the rest with him. He will do his part. You do your part. And if they still reject God, if they refuse to bow their knee to him and they die without him, that is on them. It's not on you and it's not on the Lord. Remember that. Just keep praying for them. And so after reflecting and teaching on our great and glorious God, in verse 33, Paul concludes this trilogy of chapters by 
just exploding in thanksgiving and awe. I want you to read it with me. Oh, the depths of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay him? For from him and through him and for him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. And so after wrestling with all these hard questions and, and seeing the sovereignty and the wisdom and the power of God in it all, Paul says, God, you are just so incredible. You are so rich in your wisdom and knowledge. It's impossible for us to understand your ways, your decisions, your methods. For example, we know that nothing that God ever plans or says interferes with human responsibility or our free will to make decisions. And yet the amazing thing is that nothing that we humans ever do can frustrate God's sovereign plan. I mean, doesn't that just blow your mind? How can you explain that? No matter what we do, whether we choose this or that, ultimately it all works out to accomplish what God wants accomplished. This is the God that we worship and serve. Paul writes, who has known the mind of the Lord? Even though we may not understand his ways, we do know that he is faithful. We know that he is a good God who has our best interests at heart in all things and that he can be trusted. You know, I am so grateful for what I do understand about God and about what the Bible teaches me about life. But I'm not going to understand it all and neither are you. But here's the thing. God does know and understand it all. So trust him. Rest in him. Lean on him. Find peace and contentment in knowing that he is God and we're not. It's okay to ask questions. It's okay to try to understand and to come to grips with some of the mysteries of life. And yes, at times, there are things in life that just aren't going to make any sense at all. But when it's all said and done, rest in the arms of the one who does know and understand it all. The one who is the sovereign, good, gracious, and faithful God who will never leave us or forsake us. And when all that you have left to trust in, when all that you have left to lean on is God, you're going to find, as I have, that he is enough. Would you bow your heads, close your eyes. And just take a moment to ask, Lord, what are you saying to me?
through the teaching here of Romans 11. And Lord, what are you asking me to do about it? 